me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. We live in a paradoxical time where we have more comfort but less peace, more connectivity but less connection, more information but less wisdom. The purpose of this podcast is to explore these natural tensions with independent voices who will push our thinking. This is the Paradox Podcast. So it took me getting good enough at it to know how good at it I was not. It took me getting just good enough at it to know I'm not good at it at all. You can learn quite a lot from experience. That's one thing. There's something after that. Have you the will and determination to do anything about it? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Paradox Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Tibbetts. For episode number 15, I chatted with startup investor Mike Maples about the process entrepreneurs should use to uncover breakthrough insights, a fishing trip with his dad that taught him a lifelong lesson, how he stumbled into his first angel investment, how he broke into venture capital after being a founder, and one of the biggest issues facing our country that almost no one talks about. We even turned the tables and Mike fired some questions my way as well. Mike is the co-founder and partner at Floodgate Capital and was one of the original Super Angels. He's been on the Forbes Midas list since 2010 and was also named one of the eight rising stars by Fortune Magazine. Before becoming a full-time investor, Mike was involved as a founder and operating executive at back-to-back startup IPOs, including Tivoli Systems and Motive. Some of Mike's investments include Twitter, Twitch, NGMoco, Weebly, Chegg, Bizarre Voice, Spiceworks, Okta, and Demand Force. Mike is the host of an amazing podcast called Starting Greatness and freely shares his insights on Twitter at M2JR. Mike is someone I've really enjoyed getting to know over the past year, and he is as compassionate and big-hearted as he is insightful and wise. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Mike Maples. Well, Mike, thanks for carving out time to join me here on the Paradox podcast. We caught up, I think, middle of February as this pandemic was really ramping up. And then we caught up briefly again in May when the pandemic was full blown. And now we're catching up again now. And so we've kind of connected throughout this process. And my sense of things is time's been really weird. So March felt like a decade. And then I think from March to now felt like a couple of weeks. And also in terms of innovation, we're seeing certain things accelerate and decelerate. So I guess that's a long-winded way of me asking, what are some of the areas of change that you're seeing right now that you're optimistic about? And what's an area of change that you're more pessimistic about? Yeah. So it's interesting. When I think about our business, you know, we invest too early or way too early, right? In these startups before they're even companies. And normally what we do is we follow what I refer to as inflections. And an inflection can be technology-based, you know, like Moore's Law or cost to sequence a genome, but it's basically exponentially improving technology price performance, or you can have adoption inflections. You know, smartphones went from 10% adoption to over 50% in like a five-year span of time in the United States. Or you can have uh, regulation inflections, auctioning off of communication spectrum, or uh, more recently, making it legal to do telemedicine visits across state lines, 
or you can have what what I think is the most subtle is uh, belief inflections, which is uh, what was once considered heresy now seems kind of normal or makes sense, right? And so, to me, the normally the investments that I've been tracking are based on technology and adoption inflections, right? So, like like Lyft, the technology inflection was that the GPS locators and smartphones got really accurate. And the adoption inflection was, you know, in 2010, a little less than 20% of people had smartphones, but you could see a world where a whole lot of people would. And so you start to say, wow, you know, if, if everybody who wants to be a driver or rider has a smartphone and they can find each other, you know, you could apply the sharing economy to m- moving objects and transportation. That's kind of interesting. What I'm finding, though, in the pandemic is it's the belief inflections that seem to be driving things, right? So, you know, returning to the telemedicine example, a lot of people knew what telemedicine was, and it may be done a visit or two, but it wasn't, it wasn't the default option for people in most cases, right? And so I think now a lot of doctors I talk to, a lot of people I talk to say, all things being equal, I would rather that be the point of departure now for my visits. You know, there has to be a reason for me to go visit my doctor now. All things equal, I won't though. So that would be an example of a belief inflection. Another belief inflection might be, you know what, I kind of do want most of my stuff delivered to the house now. And so I think that I saw somewhere on Twitter that the amount of e-commerce growth in the last, since the pandemic started is equal to all of the growth in cumulative history up to that point. I saw a McKinsey chart that said we did 10 years of e-commerce growth. It got basically compressed into three months, which is just insane acceleration on that front. And obviously, you know, DoorDash, Instacart, all those brands have been the benefit of that, basically getting injected with next to free customer acquisition. And and so where where do I believe that belief inflections will have an impact? I think that they they tend to have an impact on areas where you kind of knew something needed to change but there's just too much inertia in the world, right? So mm-hmm. telemedicine visits. I mean, the technology's existed to do telemedicine for a very long time, but it, it's just like the, the healthcare industry is not characterized by its awesome speed and cutting edge behavior, right? Yeah. And, uh, or, or it's general market dynamics, right? I mean, if insurance is paying for my visit, maybe there's a $20 copay. I guess I feel like I'm getting more value if I go in. However, when there's a risk of potentially being exposed to a virus, it changes right. the cost benefit analysis of going in. And so if you're a patient, you're thinking, well, I can lower my exposure, my risk exposure by doing a telemedicine appointment. And if you're a doctor, you're thinking the same thing. And you're also thinking maybe my first line of defense, maybe the way I triage all these different potential patients is to just have a 15 minute, basically Zoom call with them first. Right. And so, you know, to me, Zoom is another good example of a belief inflection where people are like, well, you know, all things being equal, do I really have to go into the office? And if you'd been in a company before this, there's a very small number of companies, you know, like GitLab, uh, Matt Mullenweg over at Automatic, who who were kind of remote or distributed first by default. But I think it, it, that in the case of, say, Floodgate with our team, or a lot of the companies I'm involved with, if you'd said, I think our default should be distributed first, the the burden of proof would have been on you to explain to people why that's the case. 
and and you probably don't win that argument because you don't have the counterfactual and there's just a lot of inertia for doing things it was like every good company in the world does it this way so but now that you've got no option so i think part of these belief inflections happen because of the elimination of the paradox of choice right if, yeah. if you have no choice but to work remote, you figure out how to do it. We got to run the counterfactual where we were all forced to work home. And then we said, well, there's certain benefits here. And now actually you're you're right. You have to make a case for why being 100% co-located in one of the most expensive cities in the world, say San Francisco, is the better choice than being distributed or something in between, right? There might be a flexible model that I think Um, think could be interesting. And schooling is another example, right? Like people have been talking about homeschooling, but it was kind of seen as a kind of a wacky fringe quasi religious kind of thing. Right. (laughs) And, uh, and now people start to say, it's not just about homeschooling, but it's like, all right, what type of education should be delivered online? What kind of education are my kids really getting here? And wow, this is kind of interesting. The teachers union seem to get to decide when people are going to go back to school. And so uh, a lot of experiments that would have been considered kind of wacky and uh, heresy are now it's like part of the, just the normal course of doing business. And so, and, and I tend to believe that, that just like healthcare K to 12 education in the U S is fundamentally broken in many ways, some of which may even be unfixable within the context of the current system. And so if, if there's a silver lining in all this, I think that COVID-19 forced a bunch of people to say, look, I'm going to have to try to do some things that obviously needed to happen, but that there was just enough inertia to slow it down from happening. So in those areas, I think it really accelerated some things. I couldn't agree more. And I want to get back to talking about startups and, and we'll get into backcasting and innovation yeah, in general, but wanted to kind of switch gears a little bit and, and ask a slightly different question and kind of take a step back to give our audience just more context about who you are and, and uh, where you come from. And I know that sure. um, family is super important to you. I've heard you talk about the role and the influence that your dad has played in your life. Is there a story from either your childhood or maybe your young adult or college years that really strongly influenced who you are today? I think there might be one or two. So one that I remember really long ago, I was about five years old and I, we, I grew up in Oklahoma and in Oklahoma, you get in these fishing competitions. And so I was, at, I was just old enough to enter this fishing competition and it was, you know, five years old and the maximum age was 16. And so my dad and I go to the lake there's all these people, you know, we're running around in overalls and stuff. And, and, you know, everybody's running to the place they want to go catch a fish. And so my dad says, hey, you know, you may not win this because there's a lot of people in this competition, but I think you might be best off if you pick one spot and stick with it. And so let's have a conversation about where the best spot might be. Would it be better to be in deep water or shallow water? Would it be better to be in the shade or under the sun? Like, what do you think? And he would just almost like use the Socratic method to get me to reason where we should go. And so, so he goes, okay, do you think that's really where you want to go and spend the rest of the day? And I said, I said, yeah, why not? You know, and he goes, well, let's just do that. So we sit there the whole day. And sure enough, everybody around us is running, you know, somebody will be somewhere for 30 minutes and then get bored of that spot and go, go run across the lake to another spot. 
And, you know, all these kids older than me are just darting in all directions, trying to catch a fish. And I'm just sitting in the same spot. And eventually my bobber goes under the water and it's this carp. And I catch this thing and I end up winning the contest. And I, I mean, I could barely even hold this fish. It, it was so big compared to me. So I won this trophy, right? It says like Mike Maples Jr. carp catch, you know, 1973, Oklahoma City. And in many ways, that's one of the best metaphors I've ever experienced for investing, you know, because people have a tendency to just run around and chase the newest thing. And it's really tempting to kind of, and, and this is true, I find in startups as well, it's tempting to go after the, the newest, interesting head fake. And most of the people that I've seen do really well are more about doing less but better and uh, focus, right? And so what like the lesson that my dad really taught me there was the power of focus and the power of not dispersing your energy, but instead concentrating your energy. And, you know, you want to think in bets and you want to, you want to make bets where you're going to apply your energy with the greatest probability of success, but like stick with it, right? There's the advantage of focus compounds over time. Yeah. And so, you know, that was, that was a very fortunate story, you know, early in my life that just kind of happened to work out. But, yeah, it, I, but he would I have been right. Story. Yeah, he would have been right, though, regardless of whether I won the contest, right? Somebody else could have just, just gotten lucky and won. But it was the right lesson for a five-year-old kid to learn. Yeah, I love that story on so many levels. I think it's a great metaphor for investing. It's also a great metaphor for life, right? There's totally. certain things that you're uniquely capable of doing and you need to make decisions about where you pour that energy, that effort, that time. And like you just said, right, that earns compound interest, whether it's a relationship or whether it's a passion or an interest. And certainly it spills over into work. So that's yeah. a... That's an amazing lesson. Was there a second story you wanted to tell too? Well, so when I was in high school, I started this uh, video games software company and I was talking to my dad about it. And one time I said, you know, if I play my cards right, I might get bought by Disney, I might sell it to Disney. And he said, no, you have the, you have the wrong attitude. You should buy Disney. Uh, <laughs> right. So, so that was the other thing he taught me was that any strategy you have should be a strategy to lead always. And that you can always assume a leadership-oriented posture in anything you do. It's, it's kind of related to the lesson of focus, but like, don't embark on any strategy that doesn't involve you leading. And, 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 you, know, and you need to define your strategy in such a way where you can be the leader, but don't just have a strategy where you don't really have a strategy, you're just playing the game. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think that was really another great. good one. Yeah. Yeah, really, really great life lessons there. So you're easily one of the most famous startup investors in Silicon Valley, but that was never a foregone conclusion, right? I think if we go back 20, 30 years and you could maybe tell yourself then what you would be doing now, I, I think you might be surprised at some of the twists and turns and the nonlinear way in which your story as an investor has emerged. Can you talk about how you first ended up in Silicon Valley? Obviously you, you grew up in Oklahoma, but you ended up out here on the West Coast. And then second, how you were able to break into venture capital eventually. Yeah. So if you had told me six months before I got into venture that I was ever going to be a venture capitalist, I wouldn't have believed it. So I thought of myself as an entrepreneur and every now and then I get approached by 
folks in the venture business, but I was like, no, nah, I'm not interested in that. So I, I was at a startup called Tivoli Systems. I was one of the really early folks there. And we ended up going public and getting acquired by IBM. And then we started a company, some friends from Tivoli and then Scott Abel from Next, we started a company called Motive, which did broadband software. So in the in the late 90s, the cable companies and the telcos wanted to create broadband services and they didn't have good software to roll it out. So we we helped them do that. And then we helped some of the software companies and computer companies do tech support on the internet. And, and so I was just like, well, that's just what I am, right? I'm a startup guy. And it, it was late 2004-ish, uh, John Thornton at Austin Venture said, have you ever thought about being a VC? You've been doing this motive thing now for seven years and it's about to go public and all that. And I said, look, I just, I don't think so. I, you know, I don't think I'm going to be good at it. There's no, no evidence that I'd be good. I, I know I know how to build stuff. I'm not sure I know how to invest. I've never done an angel investment in my life even. Hmm. And so he said, well, just humor me. And so he started to show me deals and we would look at things together. And I have to admit, I got pretty darn interested. And so, so I started to think maybe that is a good next step. And then at about that time, I, I went out to California just to see what was going on out here and immediately got just caught up in the excitement of the, the, the internet was kind of reemerging as a platform. So, you know, the beginning days of web 2.0, we didn't, we didn't know how to call it social networking yet or any of that mm -hmm. stuff, but you could, you could tell that it was kind of time to get the party started again on the internet after the bubble had burst. Yeah. The and hangover so, of uh, the crash in 2000, 2001. Yeah. So I was like, you know, I'm, I'm sitting on the sidelines. There's something really special happening in the San Francisco area. And so what I would do is my, my kiddos were in uh, uh, grade school and actually kindergarten even. And so I would, I'd fly up on Sunday and I would stay in Silicon Valley till Thursday. And the, the goal was just to figure out something exciting in venture in Silicon Valley. And so for a time, Foundation Capital let me camp out there as an entrepreneur in residence. And then August Capital did the same. And it was in that, having that vantage point that I kind of locked on to this idea of creating an organized seed fund. Um, right. And so Which was, was one of the first of super angel seed funds. I mean, basically helped yeah, create I think, that I whole think, category. You know, myself, Josh Koppelman, Steve Anderson, or so, sort of some of the seed OGs, if you will. That's right. So, that's right. Yeah. That's right. The original operator angels. What's something that you miss about being a founder of a company? And what's something that you definitely don't miss? The thing I miss most is the juice of the product team. And so I just remember that energy of we're building something awesome. When the world sees this, it, we're going to rock their world. It's, you know, we're just going to like, we're going to move the world with this thing. And that kind of fun is done when you're an investor, you know, mm. and that you don't, you got to get ready to have a different kind of fun. So I really miss that because the, the, just the juice and the fire of that is powerful, you know, and I never stopped missing it. I still miss it to this day, you know. Now I have to come up with other side projects, you know, <laughs> cinematography or just art or stuff to substitute for it. So I miss that a lot. The, the thing I don't miss, and this is more of a B2B thing than consumer, the last day of the quarter. So, you know, it I got to a point where if there was a risk, we're going to miss the number and it's the last week of the quarter. It was very hard for me to be present at home. You know, mm -hmm. and it's like, you like it when, you know, if you've got a five-year-old son who wants to play trains, 
you want to be playing trains with them, right? You want to be in the headspace of playing trains. And, you know, when you're like scared that if you miss the quarter, you're not going to go public, it, it, it's just hard. It was hard for me, at least, to tune that out. Yeah. Whereas in venture, it's sort of like if, if a company were invested in misses the number, it's a bummer, but there's not much I can do about it, right? There's and there's dozens of other companies that are also missing or making their numbers to adjust for that, right? There's like, a, it's that portfolio yeah. effect so, that kind of works to your advantage here. Exactly. So the startup is much more of a roller coaster and the highs are amazing and the lows are just really low, but there's no way to like, there's no way to mitigate that, the, the amplitude of that sign curve, right? And yeah. um, venture capital has a, a much damper sign curve, yeah, which means less stress, but also less glory, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Now that I'm a parent of a, of a two-year-old daughter, I can, I can see both sides of it, right? I think I, I've only worked in startups for the last 12 or 13 years. Started doing some angel investing a little bit, so building that muscle a little bit on the side, more for fun because I really love and enjoy jamming with founders on marketing, especially when they're before the point where marketing is even starting to fully make sense for them. Yeah. But yeah, I can totally empathize with the high highs and the low lows. There's something powerful when you're on a team and there's a secret, you know, that outside the walls of your startup, no one seems to really know. And yeah. maybe your secret is right. And maybe your secret's wrong. I know you, you perpetuated the whole non-consensus, right? Kind of the two by two matrix. But once you've been a part of one or two of those things where you're right, it's so, so powerful. But yes, the, the lows yeah. are low and it, it distracts you when you're, when you're at home. So I can see both sides of it. Okay. This is a different kind of a question. What's the craziest sort of Silicon Valley story that you're willing to share? And I know you've run into a lot of different famous people within sort of Silicon Valley history, or maybe just a moment of serendipity. What's kind of like a really crazy story that is emblematic of the serendipity that's uh, pretty frequent here in the Valley? Well, I don't know how crazy this is, but it's pretty serendipitous. I mean, I remember, so I get here and I learned pretty early that I'm, I'm not going to be able to be a partner at Foundation Capital. So I've immigrated to Silicon Valley. And right around that time, I also, I brought in this company to, called Odeo into Foundation Capital and Foundation decides to pass on it. And so I say, look, I really like these people. I think I still want to invest. They said, okay, that's fine. So I invested like $50,000 or something. And a week later, uh, so Odeo was a podcasting company. A week later, Apple decides to give podcasting away on iTunes. And at the time, there was no iPhone. So the iPod had almost 100% market share. So it's like, wow, how do we even have a business in that world? And eventually we discovered we didn't. And so some of the investors were getting disenchanted with F. Williams. And so Ev had made some money on his blogger sale to Google. So he just decided to give everybody their money back. And he calls me up one day and tells me what the what the program is. And I said, look, you know, you don't owe me anything. I, I took a risk. You win some, you lose some. And he said, well, it's just going to be easier if you just kind of play along with this. And I just give everybody their money back and I'll just keep the assets and it'll be clean that way. And I said, okay. And I said, what, like, what kind of assets are there, you know, other than Odeo and Odeo Studio? He goes, well, we got this side project called we're going to call it voicemail 2.0 or TWTTR. So we're working on that. And I'm like, well, what does that do? And he, he describes it to me, you know, you say what you're doing and um, 140 characters or less. And I had no, I didn't really have any clue what he was talking about. Right. 
But I said, hey, look, I'd really like to invest in it if I can, because I think it's really honorable for you to give me my money back. So it turns out, you know, a few months later, it blows up at South by and which is ironic because it was Austin, Texas, where I was from. Yeah. And, you know, he remembered and, and uh, circled back with me. And so I got to as soon as Twitter raised his first money, I got to put my money in Twitter. But I mean, talk about forward fumble. I mean, it was like one of these things where first entrepreneur I ever backed is the first angel investment I'd ever made. <laughs> That's crazy. It was Twitter. Uh, yeah. And so I, you know, I, I joke with, you know, I tell people that what's the secret to success in venture capital? I think it's get lucky in the first five years. And yeah. um, a lot of VCs I, I know on the Midas list, if I say that to them, they're offended by that. But I'm like, all right, when was your first hit? It's almost always in the first five years. True. And so true. I'm, like, I'm like, show me a more predictive pattern. And so I think that, that it's really important. And, you know, it, it, the other reason it's important is just I try to remember the grace that those early entrepreneurs showed me and letting me get in on their projects and, you know, not, uh, you know, the, just the honorable behavior that they showed. You know, Kevin Rose was honorable in a different way, but some of these early folks I got to work with were just really great. And I try to, I try to remember that in my interactions with entrepreneurs going forward. Yeah. They, they kind of put me in business rather than the other way around. Totally. It's an honor to be included and, and yeah, to be, to be part of the journey in that way. I love the Naval, sort of the Navalism around play long-term games with long-term people. And yeah. Ev Williams' move to return all the money to investors just feels like sort of the quintessential moment like that, where it's like, I'm going to do right by these investors. It's, this is not necessarily the norm, but I'm guessing that must have stood out in your mind, even though you had no idea what he was cooking up next and no one could have predicted the impact yeah. that Twitter would have had on the world. I mean, you and I connected, actually, we originally connected like way back 10 years ago when I went to pitch Anne on my startup idea in college. That was a, yeah. a very silly startup idea, but we reconnected over Twitter. And I actually did a tweet yesterday where I was, my point was that, you know, Twitter obviously has uh, its flaws in terms of it being a community where there's toxicity and maybe lack of nuance or whatever. But the impact it's had on my life is amazing. My last two jobs yeah, in a too. row came through Twitter. 80% of the podcast guests that I've gotten to meet have been through Twitter DMs. And I've literally met dozens, like I don't know, two dozen, three dozen, uh, really, really amazing people who uh, are selflessly willing to help other people and they're not looking for anything in return. And it's just... That's, that doesn't exist on any other platform for me. And maybe it's, yeah. I don't use Instagram. I don't use Facebook that much, but uh, yeah. it's just amazing that your first angel investment is a big part of why we're talking here today. So very, very. Oh cool. yeah. Just incredibly lucky, you know, and you know, that's luck is an important part of it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, it's going back to the fishing story with your dad. You kind of picked a spot and you kind of went with it, but you know, sometimes you get the carp and sometimes you don't, but it's, it's staying in the game and, and staying focused. So yeah, I love that. So fast forwarding to today, and you don't have to mention the specifics of the investment if it's not public, but what's sort of the most interesting, crazy is maybe not the right word, but like just off the wall idea that you bet on or, or founder that you bet on in the last year? Oh, the last year. Well, I want to be careful not to put any of those folks too on the spot. I, I like what Isaac Morehouse is doing at Crash a lot. So, in terms of in terms of being controversial, so Isaac has created this company called Crash that helps people who don't necessarily have a college degree get better jobs. Mm. And what he's, I think, his insight is that for the most part, 
if you have a college degree, it doesn't prove that you're an expert in the thing that you studied. It proves that you won a tournament in high school, that you stuck with it for four years and they have a good network. And so really what a college degree is, is it's a signal. And uh, companies have decided that they respect that signal and, and perhaps for valid reasons. But Isaac believes that that's an awful lot of money to spend to get a signal. And uh, a lot of people in today's world have no idea why they're going to college or what they're get, getting out of it, other than they're going to have this massive debt. And so what Isaac believes is that in the future, we're not going to have a resume economy. We're going to have an economy where you live out loud and you show your skills. You know, if you're, if you're good at Salesforce, you create a video on how you yeah. know how to use Salesforce or a blog or, or, or whatnot. And so it's sort of like living your skills out loud and showing your ability. And, and then by virtue of that, you become your own signal. Yeah. So it's I kind like of, yeah. kind of the building in public proof of work kind of thing, as opposed to the signals that might allude to some skill that's sort of hidden and beneath the surface. And that's not right. Out there so for people the to proof see. of work is a good way to describe it. So, or proof of skill, I guess, in this case, mm-hmm. but like, so I like that idea. And I like the idea of if the 20th century was the resume economy, the 21st century is not going to be that. The, the 21st century is going to be more about individuals taking agency for their life and you know, being more self-starting in their attitude about business. Yeah. And in terms of expanding opportunity for more people and hopefully starting to deconstruct sort of the credentialist system that we have that is not as meritocratic as it should be. I really love that vision. And I think you already see it happening right organically, but the idea that a company could build a little bit more of a structure and a little bit more of a platform around allowing people to do that successfully seems like such a great thing, not just for the company and for its uh, customers, but for society at large. So Super excited about that one. Yeah. And eventually, I think it also becomes a, a better form of what trade unions could have been. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, part of it is you create communities of people who help each other get jobs, help each other succeed at their jobs and trade tips and techniques and stuff. But, you know, people won't feel so by themselves or alone. You know, they'll be part of something, but they'll just be part of something different. Absolutely. So you wrote a blog post called How to Build a Breakthrough, The Secret of Backcasting. And I remember when it landed, I think it was maybe in uh, April or so. And Mark Andreessen had written his It's Time to Build kind of call to arms. And this felt sort of like the sequel to that, where Mark was saying, here's the what we need to start building. The present's not working very well. You know, the future's not guaranteed. We need to build. We need to build our way out of where we're at currently into the 21st century. And, and then your piece sort of responded and said, yes, it's time to build. Now let's figure out like, how do we build? How do we build this future that is better than the present? Can you, for folks that haven't read that piece and everyone under the sound of our voice should read that piece because it's really excellent, but can you unpack this idea of backcasting and how it's different than how most people generally figure out ideas through forecasting or things yeah. like that? Yeah. So the main idea behind it was that let's take, say, customer development. Like when you start a startup, people say you should do customer development, which I agree with. And the mantra for that is get out of the building. But I actually think that there's a stage prior to customer development, which I call insight development. And when you do insight development, you want to get out of the present. And why is that? Well, 
by definition, a breakthrough breaks free from something, right? And so a breakthrough has to break free from the arc of the present projecting forward. And so in order to do that, you have to get out of the present and consider different potential futures other than what's projected forward from the present. So how do you do that? Well, I believe you start with this thing that I call inflections. You know, we alluded to it a little bit ago, but an inflection is usually external to the startup and it's an exponentially changing curve. And it matters because inflections are like the weapon that the entrepreneur has to wage asymmetric warfare on the present, right? So yeah. an inflection allows, because these curves are exponential or changing very rapidly, an inflection allows an entrepreneur to create a product offering that is distinctly different from the present. Right. And that follows the, the exponential potential energy of these inflections and converts it into the mechanical energy of a breakthrough product. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's also uh, part of the answer to the question, like, why now? It's like the why now question usually sometimes gets gets connected to inflection. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so like what I encourage entrepreneurs to do is don't start by ironically, if you want to have a great startup at a, a breakthrough. Don't start out by thinking of a startup. In fact, don't start out even by thinking of a market at all. Hmm. Think about inflections that you can become obsessed with, understanding in a very deep way, and then get out of the present and imagine uh, a set of scenarios that would be possible in different alternative futures by virtue of these inflections. And so, like, what is an insight really? An insight is a bet. A an insight is something in the future that is more probable to happen because of these inflections than people living in the present realize. It seems present improbable, future more probable than people realize. And on some level, the asymmetric upside of being right about the bed is where you have a, an awesomely powerful startup. Mm -hmm. And so, and, 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 the, and the better price that you're paying for that bet is, is a function of the power of the insight that you have. And so, being non-consensus and right is important, but it's not about being wacky contrarian in the present. It's about arbitraging your insight about a different future that's more likely to happen than people living in the present understand, right? That's, that's the big idea. And then, you, then you, you know, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of different insights that live out in the future. And then you kind of ask, well, what's the one that fits me the best? You know, so like, mm. you know, I like to say some insights are, plausible, like Okta and single sign-on for cloud. Some are possible, you know, like the Mosaic browser when Mark Andreessen did it. And some are preposterous, like Elon's startup. Yeah, so SpaceX. Car, SpaceX, yeah. blast rockets into outer space. And so, you know, you may believe that, that somebody can blast rockets into outer space, but you may say, I'm not sure I'm that guy, right? I'm not sure I'm cut out to be the entrepreneur that does that. So, an insight is also a bet on you and just what types of insights fit you and your passion and your obsession about creating a different future. So that was kind of the, the, the backcasting piece was like a, a method of uh, thinking about stuff. So like we talked about Lyft a second ago. With Lyft, the inflections were GPS locators and smartphones got accurate enough and enough people would have smartphones. So that's the inflections. The insight was 
oh, that means you could apply sharing economy principles like Airbnb to moving things like cars. The idea, the breakthrough idea was, oh, transportation network with an app at the front end. But like there's kind of this breakthrough sequence, right? Where you start with the inflections and then you lead to the insight and then you lead to the breakthrough idea. And what I, when I get pitched by founders, the first thing I always ask is what inflections are you following? Mm. Because um, that's like the top of the funnel and you kind of work your way down from inflections. Yeah, because the, the power of the inflections are a proxy for the power of the weapons that you have as an entrepreneur to change the subject. The more degrees of freedom you have to create change and chaos. And right. the, the less powerful the weapons are, the more the gravitational pull of the present will exert itself on you. One of the interesting tensions about what you just mentioned was kind of the Steve Blank customer development model versus, say, the backcasting model. And if I think of a really famous, you mentioned this concept of like a seer, someone that kind of lives in the future and actualizes it, you know, Steve Jobs wasn't doing customer development to figure out the iPhone, right? The iPhone was this thing that was beamed from 10 years into the future to all of us in 2007. And he, he may have done some customer development, but I think he largely abhorred doing customer development. So I love the tension between those things. And it's not that either one is 100% right or 100% wrong, but it's this tension between seers who live in the future, as you allude to in your piece. And I think you call them practitioners that sort of live and execute in the present. Can you talk about that tension? And can you maybe give some tangible examples of seers and and practitioners in your life that you go to to talk about these things? Yeah, and it's an important distinction because um, customer development, you know, the metaphor is a scientist running experiments, right? Where you get out of the building. I like to say that the metaphor for insight development is a time traveler. And time traveler is important because it's not just that they're living in the future. Great entrepreneurs are able to resolve the impedance mismatch between people who live in the future, which I call seers, and people who live in the present, often practitioners. And so if you think about people, most people live in the present. Most people, even if they're uncomfortable with the present or if the present's painful, they're comfortable in their present state of pain and they just kind of do things tomorrow the way they did it yesterday. And some people go a little farther than that. Like you might have product managers, I call these practitioners. They're people who are responsible for something, right? Like a P&L or shipping a product or, you know, some type of deliverable. They have sort of a practical grounded sense of the implication of a set of inflection. So like, let's say that you are interested in the opportunity for embedded FinTech APIs as an inflection. The practitioners you might talk to could be product managers at places like Stripe or Square or Plaid. And, but the important thing is asking the right questions, right? So if you ask questions like, well, what's the implications of embedded FinTech APIs 10 years out? they won't really have a context to respond very well to that. So like what I tend to do is when I talk to practitioners, I ask questions that are more tangible in the here and now. It's like, are you guys doing anything about this? Have you seen any companies that are doing anything about this? Do you know any smart people who know a lot about this? Have you seen any cool new tools or ideas lately about this? But I don't ask them hypothetical stuff. And it reminds me a lot of how to do customer development, right? Like I never ask a customer a hypothetical question because what I'm trying to understand is the world as they're experiencing it, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you're talking to practitioners, you're trying to understand 
inflections as experts with accountability experience it. It could be a dev manager, could be a biz dev person, corp dev person, product manager, all those kinds of people. And quite often the, the good ones understand who the seers are as well. Mm. Now, seers, on the other hand, don't like to be encumbered with the details of how to make the future happen, right? So like a good example of a seer who's been this for a while is George Gilder, right? So George Gilder wrote a book called Microcosm. And in this book, he posited that someday for all practical purposes, computing power will be free. It used to be expensive in mainframes that the microprocessor is going to make computing free. So therefore, what's going to be valuable in a world where computers could be assumed to be free? And then he wrote a book called Telecosm. And he said, what would a world look like where communication bandwidth is free? Hmm. And that book actually inspired me in my early motive days, right? Because I was like, if there's a world where all the broadband, all the telcos and the cable companies make communications bandwidth effectively free, the world is going to need software that helps that happen because the desire for it will be insatiable. But like if you ask George Gilder, so therefore, what product should I build in a world of free communications bandwidth? You will frustrate him with that question, right? Because he's like, so like if you think about it, most people who live in the present and most people who who are practitioners or seers who live in the future, I like to say there's an impedance mismatch between them. Mm-hmm. Um, because they don't want to move from where they are. Right. And so an entrepreneur is not just someone who lives in the future, nor was Steve Jobs. They're a time traveler in the sense that they resolve the impedance mismatch. And when I realized that, it, it changed my point of view about what entrepreneurship really is. Right. Yeah. Like, so what an entrepreneur really is, is a time traveler who, based on inflections, identifies a valuable non-consensus potential future, then comes back to the present and starts a movement and recruits early people to join their movement. And in that sense, that's why startup markets aren't like normal markets. Normal markets can be mapped with Mm -hmm. segments and targets and beachheads and stuff like that. Startup markets are more easily understood to be movements. Mm. And so like, rather than think like, this is a little bit of a religious example, but rather than be a Bible salesman, you're starting a new religion right? and you're trying to get disciples, right? You're trying to get true believers to join with you. And at it's, first- it's, it's zero to one versus one to N, the kind of incremental. Exactly right. Yeah. And, and so the zero to one phase is finding a set of people who are in on the secret with you to start a movement. And then as the movement gathers with force, your idea goes from being heresy to, hey, this might be right, to, of course, it's right. And now you become a real company and you've created a new category that could be defined as a traditional market with segments and players and stuff. And so, so that's why, like, the great entrepreneurs can do both, right? Like Steve Jobs can see the future. Steve Jobs can walk into Xerox Park and see that, of course, everybody's going to have a computer on their desk with a bitmap display and WYSIWYG editors and laser printers. But then he comes back to the present and is able to get a team together that builds a product, but also uses persuasion skills to get people rallied behind his point of view. And in many ways, when you're a startup, the point of view is the company. Yeah. Because you know, you're trying to get a set of people to buy into your provocative point of view. 
And as that accumulates and accelerates, which sure. is, by the way, why you don't want everybody to like your idea. Like, great. Yeah, yeah, true. Keith Raboy has a good thing where when he bets on a new company, he's like, I want half my friends to laugh at it. And I want half my friends to think mm, that might be a thing. Like, you don't, you don't want uniformity either way. That's usually a bad, a that, bad that's thing. That's right. In fact, the more that people like your idea, by definition, the more incremental it is. Yeah. The price you're paying for it is, is too high, essentially. That's right. And the uh, more, in terms the, of the arbitrage. The more people like your idea, the more it makes sense to people in the present. Yeah, that's right. And the more that's it makes true. sense to people in the present, by definition, the more incremental it is. <laughs> yeah. And so it, it has to, like I like to say, it's way better if you have a set of people who strongly love it and another set of people who strongly hate it. Like right. that's Pol- way Polarization is usually a good, a good signal. Yeah. And, and the mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make when they pitch people in the early days is they, they try to overcome the quote unquote objections that people have. And what I find is people are way better off when they say, I can't waste any orgs of energy on people who don't value my advantage. Mm-hmm. And so if this person doesn't value my advantage yet, I'm not going to convince them. I'm going to move on to the next person right? because I can't afford to spend the time with those people right now. Right. I'm building a movement, not consensus. I don't need everybody. I just need that handful right. of people that join the cause. Yeah. Exactly I think that's an amazing right. framework. And I love the time traveler metaphor because yes, you need to go into the future and find this insight that's mispriced by people in the present. But then yeah, in order to draw that line, to build that bridge to the future where you want to go from where we are today, you also need to be able to come back and have a firm handle on reality. That's more the customer development side of things. That's right. And the line between those two points, the customer development line and the backcasting sort of future you're projecting is your roadmap. I mean, that is it. Like figuring out how to get there is sort of your product roadmap and your company roadmap. And I suppose the more reality starts to catch up over time with your vision, the more your fledgling startup turns from just like kind of an idea and a movement into a real company. It's that catching up process of, of reality. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the startup breakthrough sequence, so I like to say startup's not a company right? Mm -hmm. It's an insight and it's a founding team. And they have to have three breakthroughs. The the first is the insight breakthrough. And because a breakthrough has to break free from something, a great insight breaks free from conventional wisdom and mundane ideas. And then you have the product breakthrough, which is what people really call product market fit. But to have a breakthrough in product, you want to break free from the need to compete against anybody. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be the best, you want to be the only. So you want to... In the product breakthrough, you're asking a different question. You're not asking what's non-consensus and right about the future. You're asking, what can I uniquely build that people are desperate for? And then the third breakthrough is the growth breakthrough. And in the growth breakthrough, you ask, what would it mean for me to achieve total global hegemony in my chosen category? (laughs) Not just make the plan, right? But just be the global hegemon. And so, you know, if you want to have a breakthrough, you kind of, each of those exists in different space time. So like the insight, you're doing backcasting and getting out of the present and thinking like a time traveler. In the product phase, you are thinking like a scientist and you're doing customer development. And there's a few things I would add from backcasting point of view about disruptive business models and stuff. And then in the the growth breakthrough, you're going from, as you pointed out, you go from zero to one to one to X mode. And so rather than being MacGyver and James Bond and Wonder Woman and Jukin and Jiving and unpredictable timeframes, it should be a highly predictable timeframe because mm-hmm. you're copying the thing that works. 
And like part of succeeding in a startup is to know what phase of the breakthrough sequence you're in. And so therefore, how do you switch operational mode? Yeah, totally. I mean, I've seen that with founders multiple times where switching between those different stages and scaling yourself to meet that moment is is extremely difficult, right? It's like traveling through time and hitting like crazy G-forces, right? Because you're just physically and psychologically and emotionally feeling all of that, all of that at once. So I'm sure we can talk about backcasting the rest of the episode. For, for the next section, this is kind of a, a little thing I'm calling turn the tables where you fire a question my way and I'll okay. do my best to answer it. Obviously, you have your own amazing podcast, Starting Greatness, one of my very favorites. So this should be a, a comfortable position for you to be the, the temporary it, podcast host. Yeah, well, I guess I always like to ask people. So this is one of my favorite interview questions, actually. So I guess Peter Thiel's is most people believe X, you believe not X, what is X, right? One of my favorite questions is, who of all people you've been exposed to in your career taught you the most about creating great startups? Mm. And what was the single most important thing they taught you? Yeah, it's hard to pick just one. I think I've been really lucky and grateful to have a lot of great managers throughout my career that took me under their wing. And I just learned so much from them that that was the thing that I'm most grateful for is the learnings that I carry forward now into the future. In particular, at Open Door, I had lots of great managers. There was one manager, a guy named Jeff Collison. He led all of growth and marketing and customer experience. He's now the COO of FAIR. And a really, really talented guy. And I think the, the lesson that I learned from him was just about how important it is when you're managing a team or a team within a team in this context to keep momentum and to sort of keep your fingers on the pulse of sort of the emotional state of the team, right? I think he was very good at taking us as a team on a journey towards where we needed to go to kind of synthesize with your backcasting idea. There was a future we we're working towards and he knew how to balance both the execution and the strategy piece of managing a team, which is like OKRs and goal setting and resourcing properly and pulling more resources into our team from other parts of the org and hiring against different skills that we needed. That's all the stuff that you expect and um, was really competent at that. But there was this other thing that he was really good at that I try to do now when I'm you know, currently leading a marketing team or leading a project or anything like that, which is how do you create an energy and a momentum more on the EQ side of things, the emotional side of things that keeps people really fulfilled and feeling like they are making progress. And yeah. so... Yeah, there's like the performance piece, like delivering the numbers, the output, but then there's this other kind of magical thing that happens kind of at a more deeper subconscious cultural level around momentum and building the momentum to actually break through, to use some of your language, that I just found really powerful. He was very good at it. And I've since just really tried to get better at building that muscle myself. And so when you're on a team that I'm a part of, or maybe a team that I'm managing, I want you to feel like it's an experience and a journey that you're on. And you're excited to see where things go, what the next scene in the movie is going to be like, what the next turn around the corner is going to be. So kind of an intangible thing that's hard to quantify, but I definitely learned a lot uh, from him in that context. Very cool. Let's see. What else would I ask you? What is the most excellent situation you've ever been in and why was that? Well, my wife may listen to this episode. So (laughs) certainly the birth of our daughter was the most amazing, miraculous situation I've ever been in. I'm not sure that's what you were going for. Let's see. It's hard to pick a moment because sometimes in the moment you don't know you're in an amazing situation. You look back and you're like, wow, what a crazy, crazy turn of events. 
here's kind of a weird example. So I was the first marketing hire at a very small startup in Palo Alto called This Life that was in the photo and sort of video space. It was kind of building a Dropbox for all of your memories and small team, 10 people. We got acquired by Shutterfly. I spent nearly two years at Shutterfly. That was the largest company I'd been a part of, which shows you what a startup person I was at that point and still am. And that was actually when I started writing a bit more online and writing blog posts. That was when Medium was kind of taking off. And uh, you had a lot of good juice on Medium where it was fully kind of interconnected with Twitter and you could post stuff and it would go kind of, yes, temporarily viral. And so anyway, I I was writing all this content. I didn't really know why. I felt like what I was trying to do was process my learnings and in a structured way. And actually writing was actually, yes, it was great to share it. But the real reason to do it was to take all these learnings I'd had and capture them and really refine them. And that's a lot of what I find in the value of writing, whether it's a tweet or a blog post. But what was so interesting that I didn't know what ended up happening is, you know, and we talked about Twitter earlier in the conversation, you know, you start to build a network around your thoughts and your thinking. And it becomes a lighthouse for like-minded people, which is something that uh, someone I heard use that phrase, I I thought was a beautiful phrase. And so even though I didn't know Keith Raboy at all personally, he was following me on Twitter, he was sharing some of my blog posts. When I decided it was time to make my next move, I sent him like, I think I sent him a cold email on LinkedIn, but it might've been a DM on Twitter, just saying, hey, are you you guys gonna be uh, hiring for marketing? And he's like, actually, yes, like we're just now thinking about it. And he introduced me to Eric, ended up having coffee with Eric, the CEO of Open Door, and joining a month later as like the second marketing hire. And it's just so, that's just a perfect example of doing something just for the sake of doing it and the joy of doing it, but it having yeah. some other effect in your future that is borderline magic. And I've had yeah. so many of those. That's just one example. But I like that example because it kind of relates to the backcasting notion. Because like, um, like I like to say, fundamentally right now in society, we've got two types of folks. We've got folks who tend to be accepting of the world for what it is. And they tend to either be supportive or critical of Mm -hmm. the status quo. And it manifests itself in lots of ways, in politics and in business. And then there's people who believe that they want to change the future. So the, the, the ethos of backcasting is this attitude that says the future is not something we try to predict. It's something that we create. And there's tons of people who will say, oh, Twitter's terrible. There's all this abuse and spam and Russian bots and mean people, cancel Mm -hmm. culture. But that's if you accept the world for how it is and somebody else's narrative. I know plenty of people who change their own future and other people's future on Twitter. And they they would have had no other way to do it. And so I like that example a lot because, you know, it's a a kind of a good example. There's this quote. attributed to Muhammad Ali that I've always liked. It's, it's a little bit of a long one, but I always really liked it. It says, um, let's see if I get it right. Impossible is just a big word thrown around by small men who find it easier to live in the world they've been given than to explore the power they have to change it. Impossible is not a fact. It's an opinion. Impossible is not a declaration. It's a dare. Impossible is potential. Impossible is temporary. Um, impossible is nothing. Wow. And so uh, that's kind of the, energetically, that's what backcasting is about, right? Backcasting is about saying, you know, we can, we can live in the world that we design. Yeah. And we don't have to just complain and commiserate with the world that was quote, unquote, given to us. Mm-hmm. We, we can decide what we want our future to be and go make it true. And part of why I wrote this piece was that I feel like 
most of society isn't big enough right now. Yeah. You know, Fortune 500 spent $800 billion in 2018 just to buy back its own stock. Right. Um, you <laughs> totally. Know, politicians are demonizing the other party, races demonizing each other, countries demonizing each other. When there's always, quote unquote, the other to blame, that's a symptom of people going with the flow and operating in a zero sum fixed pie mindset. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's so important that breakthroughs is that breakthroughs create the context for everybody to believe that they can have a better potential future and that it's not me versus the other guy. And so, yeah, it's, it's me versus reality to build the better future. This is the ultimate, I think, cultural battle we're facing right now is between the belief that the future can be forged and changed and crafted and the belief that we're just sort of, yeah, why, why stick your neck out? Right? Yeah. Why, so, why try it's, and it's not worth it. And that's, that's it. I mean, whether we push in one direction or the other, that's going to change the arc of, of history. So, yeah. And, yeah. I, and I believe right in society today, you, you have a choice to make. Are you a mm-hmm. go with the flow status quo type who's like going to pretend that the stuff, you know, like the Fed jacking with the money supply? There's a bunch of people doing stuff that's just shell games, but don't say it too loud because you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want people to actually realize that our money's getting destroyed. Yeah. Uh, so, like, let's just, not, let's just not make too big of a deal of it. And then there's other people like Elon Musk who are saying, I'm not going to discover a market for electric cars. And, and you know, great founders, that's the, the, the common thread. Like, like you said earlier, Steve Jobs didn't discover the market for smartphones. Great entrepreneurs design the future and tell us how to think about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he created you know, the category. He created a whole new category that didn't exist. That's right. That's right. That's a really great segue into a couple questions that I usually ask every guest. I won't ask all of them because we've covered so sure. much great ground in this conversation, but what's a problem that you're concerned about that most people aren't? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm quite concerned with how the U.S. is treating its money. And so one concern is that we're racking up this huge debt, but that's only part of it. If you think about it, price controls are generally thought to be a dumb idea. Like when Venezuela did price controls for common goods, of course, bad things happened because price is a signal. You know, like if a government says, I hereby mandate that every pencil will be sold for $100, mm-hmm. the guys with pencil factories will make a bajillion pencils because they can sell them for $100. That's why free market pricing matters because pricing signals the capitalist how much of something to make. And if I make too many pencils, I'll flood the market. The supply demand will be out of balance. The price of pencils will go down. I won't get paid for my innovation. I won't get paid for my productivity. So an equilibrium amount of pencils and pricing gets set by the free market. So what does the Fed do? They take the single most important thing that should be priced in a free market, i.e. our money, and they have price controls. Yeah. And, and that has profound impact. So for example, IBM has borrowed over $100 billion just to buy back its own stock. Well, if money is priced at near zero, why wouldn't you? Yeah. And so, so like, or if money is priced at near zero, why wouldn't a bunch of people set up hedge funds? Why wouldn't a bunch of people set up private equity funds and buy a company mostly with debt? 
why wouldn't people take risks on buying houses they can't afford? And so when you screw up the price of money, you screw up the incentive alignment around what's a good investment with the right time horizon of my time and effort and productivity versus not good. But you also contribute massively to wealth inequality. Yeah, totally. So like if your grandmother is saving money right now, she's only getting 0% plus a little bit return on her money. So her life savings is not multiplying as fast as it should. Yeah. And so our irresponsible stewardship of our money has contributed to wealth inequality way more than people realize. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's this silent thing that's causing, I, I actually did a tweet about this the other day, but it, this feels like the issue that everybody knows probably is a problem, but no one talks about. And the gravitational pull, going back to what we just talked about with society's sort of willingness to go and build and individuals' willingness to go create a new future, this is sort of this thing that's pulling, this gravitational pull of our money supply is pulling against that, right? It's incentivizing all the wrong behaviors, like buying stuff with debt and stock buybacks, you name it, instead of building something new or saving to invest in the future. It's, it's really distorting people's incentives and probably their psychology around what they should do. And ultimately, it's talk about backcasting. It's the, the opposite of backcasting. It's, it's outright generational theft when the government is spending trillions of dollars. And, 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 and the people that are going to actually incur the consequences either aren't even alive or don't get to vote. It's, it's horrific, yeah. honestly. And, and then to make matters worse, because politics, like a lot of, and by the way, I'm not just dissing on politicians here. I think it's happening in the Fortune 500 with share buybacks. Mm-hmm. I think it's happening yep. in the press with clickbait. I think it's all of our institutions, unfortunately, right now are kind of caught in this zero-sum trap for the most part. But when you have politicians caught in the zero-sum trap, they come haul these executives from these big tech companies in front of Congress and demonize people like Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg or Sundar. And I'm like, look, you know, you can say what you want about how powerful and rich these companies are, but Apple's not even worth $2 trillion. Like the government has like made the money printer go burr more this year (laughs) than Apple's stock market cap is. And like, that's not Apple's revenues, right? That's literally saying that's all of Apple's expected earnings potential forever and all time. Yeah. Right? Like, like the iPhone is the first product that, so, that sold a trillion dollars worth in the first 10 years. But it took them 10 years to sell a yeah. trillion dollars worth of iPhones. And we have, what, a $25 trillion debt. It's like when you, when you really step back and look at the numbers and think about the orders of magnitude, suggesting that these tech executives are too powerful because of the market caps of these companies is absurd. Well, especially when when the people doing it are from the government, which is the ultimate monopoly and the level of damage that they can do with just continuing to rack up debt or making poor policy decisions or jacking with the money supply, the level of damage that the government does is orders and orders of magnitude more than anything any of these tech companies can do. And I believe these tech companies legitimately should be criticized for things they're they're not doing correctly, Agreed. whether it's on the security side. They're not above criticism. It's just when the criticism is coming from this particular uh, group or, of folks, it's, 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 or, it's rich. Or when it's just really misguided. So, you know, the, the government basically re- revised the industry structure of the train companies in the late 1800s, and then they did the same with AT&T in the, in the early 1900s. If you want to ride on a fast train today, don't bother trying to do it in America 
Go to Japan. Go, go to Japan. And if you want to have the fastest broadband today, don't bother trying to get it in America. Well, <laughs> Japan and South Korea, right? And so yeah. I don't think the government's necessarily bad, bad intention when they say, let's no. break up big tech and do all this stuff. But like, when you start to interfere with the industry structure, all evidence points to the fact that what the big companies do is they engage in something called regulatory capture, where they use their relationship with the government to lobby for laws that prevent innovators from entering the market. Exactly. And, and, and it's easy for them to do that because they can just say, hey, government, let's agree that this is my market share. Mm-hmm. And then and now it all becomes about preserving the status quo, right? This is happening in financial services. It's just, it's crazy how long it takes to transfer money. And yeah. it's not because of any issues in technology. It's regulatory capture with the U.S. banks and ACH transfer system. So that's yep. my number one concern about some of this stuff that's happening with big tech is that they end up meddling with it in the same way that they once did with the railroads or with telecoms. And if that happens, we're heading into a future where digital platforms are globally strategic. And we're lucky that we have some. We have, mm-hmm. China has some. Europe's got a problem if they don't kind of pay more attention to this issue. But like these platforms would be strategically important and valuable in the future. And turning big tech into the next railroad industry would be a tragedy, right? It would be. Yeah. Well, and it puts the United States at a strategic disadvantage, right? Because just like this is a weird analogy, but just like with the nuclear arms race of the 20th century, in order to have a seat at the table to talk about how you handle the proliferation of nuclear weapons, you had to have nuclear weapons to have a seat at the table. You can make an analogy, right? That having some tech powerhouses within your own country gives you a large seat at the table to figure out the future of the internet, the future of technology and the future of innovation. And so it's one thing to criticize and it's one thing to potentially, I don't know, come up with some regulation where it's needed, but to try to destroy our own technology industry to the advantage of China or to the advantage of any other country that doesn't share our values is not wise on any level. Yeah. So that and uh, irresponsible stewardship of our money are the things that I see that, uh, apart from all the just the wacky nonsense that's going on that we all see today, where people demonize each other and say stupid nonsense. But like, I think that what's happening with the money and what could happen with big tech would be profoundly damaging to our future if we don't figure out a a more responsible way to have these discussions and frame what the, the real issues are. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree on both counts. So I guess last question for the podcast, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I guess I'd have to go back to my dad. So my dad used to say to me, you should think of a decision like it's a product and a product has a ship date. And most of the time in life, it's your ability to frame the decision correctly that's going to govern whether you make a good decision. So some decisions in the world are 70-30, and some are kind of 51-49. And after you've done the work, if it's 70-30, you already know the answer. You know, it's, it's not a decision problem, it's a will problem, or it's a facing reality problem. If it's 51-49, it almost doesn't matter which one you pick because the options are so close. And so what my dad helped me understand is that every decision should have a ship date. And that doesn't mean that you're flippant with the decision, but it means that decisions can't be made in a vacuum and your ability to be thoughtful about what's the ship date of the decision. Like sometimes you don't need to decide at all. So why rush? Other times deciding sooner has a huge advantage. 
then the question becomes, once you frame the ship date of the decision, what work do you do to figure out if it's 5149 or 7030? But then once you figure that out, it's time to go. It's go time. So that was, uh, that was always really helpful to me in life because I, what I find is a lot of people, they puzzle over a decision, but it's really the puzzling is about the anxiety around the decision more than it is about the framing of the decision or what's the intellectually best thing. And then the corollary, if you think of a decision as a product, it's important to realize when you're deciding something where normally you might not realize you just made a decision. So hmm. sometimes you're deciding something without knowing you just made one. Sure. It's an awareness of the decision-making process. That's, that's also the awareness about. that that you're deciding something and that you should think of it as a product. And just like when you ship a product, you take pride in it. You should take pride in the decision. Yeah. So you should think of the important decisions you make the way Steve Jobs saw the iPhone, something that people would say, man, that was badass. So I'd say that's probably the most important. That's great. I'm going to be thinking about that advice the rest of today, probably to unpack it. But Mike, this has been such a fun conversation. I always enjoy speaking with you and catching up with you. And I can't wait to share this conversation with uh, our audience because I know they're going to love it. If folks, particularly early stage founders want to reach out, what's the best way for them to get connected with you? Obviously, they should listen to Starting Greatness, your podcast, follow you on Twitter, but what's a great way to get connected? Yeah, just, you know, my email is mike at floodgate.com. And, you know, I do my best to get back to folks. Some days are better than others, you know, Um, (laughs) but yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks, Mike. I really appreciate it. It's been an awesome conversation. Thanks, Kyle. Great talk to you. We appreciate you taking the time to join us for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. We're aiming for commute length conversations with original thinkers that will push your perspective and pull you into the marketplace of ideas. If you're new to the podcast, we encourage you to check out our previous episodes. For episode number 14, I chatted with Jeff Lewis, technology investor and founder at Bedrock Capital, about the noble lies that exist all around us in society, why algorithms are the new oil, and his quest to move from Canada to the US starting at age 11. Can you talk about what a noble lie is and where these sort of pop up in society? Sure. So the concept of noble lie was originally coined by Plato. The idea of a noble lie essentially is like a myth, something that's not true. It can be of either a political or religious nature propagated by a priesthood or by an elite in a social construct to sort of maintain harmony or um, sort of advance a cause that one believes to be noble, that one believes to be good. And so they've been around forever, you know, hiding just beneath the surface. And in the context of COVID, it did feel like the, the U.S. government was, was was trying to do some noble lie stuff. And, and so specifically, the, like, you don't need a mask. I was like, okay, well, maybe that's a noble lie. Uh, but clearly it's not true, maybe it's noble. There was sort of the sense in which I felt like the, the global response was maybe leveraging noble lies. And now at this point, I actually think noble lies just can't exist anymore in a political context. I do think in a business context, in a startup context, you can sort of ape the idea of noble lie. And so even I've been on the boards of businesses like Lyft and, and, and during sort of really dark times, when even the founders of these companies are like, we're just screwed. There's a sense in which as an entrepreneur, as a founder of one of these companies, you have to put on a brave face. You have to tell a story, a narrative to your team around why the business is gonna survive, what you're gonna do. And I think sometimes those are noble lies that you end up being able to will them into reality by telling them. And so I think it's an interesting concept in a business context in a political context i totally don't believe in it anymore and then obviously it lives on in a religious context 
Yeah, I mean, I'm sure obviously when Winston Churchill was giving his famous speeches during World War II and Britain was being bombed and we hadn't entered the war yet, there's probably a lot of noble lies that he told to try to keep the morale of the people high and maybe that serves some purpose. I agree that I think noble lies have sort of outlived their usefulness. I think in the age of the internet, it just foments and propagates distrust at like a crazy level. The mass thing for me, I had such a strong reaction to that particular noble lie. I just knew that when they were saying that they don't work, that it was not true. That's a wrap for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. If you'd like to connect, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Tibbetts. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes to spread the word. And until next time, take care of yourself.